Let us pray. O Lord, this is your word, and we read that every scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for training, for correcting, for reproving. Training in righteousness, it is that which makes us adequate, perfects and completes us so that we are able to live out lives of goodness and love. Lord, so work in our hearts by your word. We confess to you our natural tendency to refuse your word, not to be humbled by your word, not to embrace the promises of your word, not to rejoice in the goodness of your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. O Lord, overcome all that would resist your word in us. And fulfill your promise that you will put your word in our hearts in the new covenant. You will make us want to obey from the inside out. Lord, we thank you that this is your work in us. That you are causing us to love from the heart because you have revealed your love to us in Christ. Oh Lord, continue that great work in us now as we come to your precious word. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll we'll begin here in Matthew chapter 21, if you want to uh, keep your Bibles open to that. And if you uh, don't have uh, your Bible, you can take the Bible that's in the pew, that blue book, and uh, you can turn to page 826 and follow along with us. One of the great questions that any of us should be asking in life is how can I live a life of happiness and rest? How can I live a life of wholeness and completeness? How can I be everything that a human being is supposed to be? And how can that manifest itself in my daily life so that I don't have to look back on this week or the week before or any week and say, oh, I wish I had lived this way or that. Though there might be aspects certainly of our lives always that are not perfect, but, but that we would give our lives to the central issues that would bring about in our own lives, in the lives of others, the greatest fullness and richness and completeness. That we would be blessed of God and that we would be a blessing to other people. And in a world in which happiness is sought so desperately and so wildly and so erratically, in which so little of it is found, in the Bible, even in Ecclesiastes, the question comes up about life. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, interestingly, gives life thumbs up and thumbs down. We we hear that sometimes with uh, movie reviewers, but in Ecclesiastes, he gives both uh, reviews of life. And it all centers around this one thing of, of happiness. In, in one sense, he says, all of life is vanity and empty. No matter what you do, it's empty. But then alongside of that E word is another big E word in Ecclesiastes, and that is enjoy life. Enjoy life to the full. And the whole difference there is our attitude toward God. And it is bound up, I believe, in this quality of Jesus Christ 
that we see exhibited here in chapter 21, that he comes as a king, he comes as Messiah, he comes to rule, he comes as God manifest on earth. And that he comes on a donkey specifically declaring his humility. And he declares of those who are members of his kingdom, here's one of the characteristics of those who are blessed and happy in my kingdom. They are the meek and they, the humble meek ones, will alone inherit this earth. Every non-humble, unmeek person will be disenfranchised, kicked off the property. That's how important this quality is. And then when he calls people to come to him, to come and find rest for their souls, you expect at this point for him to say, especially as he says, come ye who are laboring and heavy laden. And we think of the burdens given them by the Pharisees, oppressive laws, and that Jesus will say, I will forgive you all of your sins. And of course that's included in his message. But the message that produces rest is learn of me, I am humble and meek. And then you will find rest for your souls. It's as though the true restoration to humanity, to being true human beings, to being what we were made to be in the image of God is that we will be restored to true meekness and humility. This is the blessedness of the kingdom. This is the, these are the people who will inherit the earth. These are the people who will walk in the rest of Christ. Christ's own rest must be a part of his being a humble, meek person. And even here, the demonstration in what might be the most glorious revelation of Christ in one way in Matthew, he comes. And I don't say in less glory, it is a great part of his glory that he comes humble riding on a donkey. That's not a veiling of his glory. It's an exhibition of the glory of his character at that point. So, we introduce with this idea of to find rest, to find true happiness, to try find true glory as a human being and fulfillment as a human being, to find the very reason, the very base of how we live as human beings is to discover something of what Christ is talking about and Christ is exhibiting as the humble one. Now, first, I want to talk just a little bit about the history of this event and explain a few details. And then we want to focus on this aspect of his meekness that is so deliberately set forth by Matthew and then tie that in with the other two passages that we read. Look at those and examine those a little bit as they unveil his humility. And then we want to make some practical applications. But first, let's look just a little bit at this history. This is the Passover And at the Passover, as people were coming uh, from the east over the Mount of Olives and down the valley and up the other side to Jerusalem, they would sing many of the psalms called the Hallel, the praise psalms from Psalm 114 to 118. We read one of those psalms, uh, chapter 118. And uh, they would many times 
uh, have palms with them, would celebrate in, in glorious ways. And so uh, as they saw the city itself, especially, there would be rejoicing. So there was generally rejoicing and then there would be bands of people from different areas that when they would mount and uh, mount the uh, Mount of Olives and, and see the city, they would burst out in, in cheers and, and praises to God. So the fact that there was so much commotion around Christ was perhaps a bit unusual, a bit concentrated, but because there was always wild rejoicing at this time, this didn't draw the attention of the authorities to what kind of political figure is this, let's call out the troops, let's get rid of him, they're calling him a Messiah, let's take care of this. So though there was this rejoicing and some kind of controlled acknowledgement of Christ as Messiah, it was not so large as to cause uh, the trouble of authorities coming to bear. Then the other thing that we notice is Jesus calling the disciples to the village to get the donkey that was tied up. There are various views of this. Some say this is a sign of Jesus knowing something that no one else knew, knowing that the donkey was tied there, knowing that they could go, and he even controlled it to such an extent that when they said the Lord has need of it, the person gave it to them. Now, that's one view. Another view that honors the Scripture is that there was some kind of prior arrangement. Jesus had been in that area many times, and he may have arranged for uh, a certain uh, donkey to be there. Or another view is that there were groups of animals that were available for anyone that would like to commandeer them. And Jesus, being known by people in that area, would have been given uh, one of these donkeys. Now, that's not so important, but this is important. He makes a lot of that event, doesn't he? He, he gives detail of how the donkey is tied up and they went and got the donkey and brought it. That's to underscore not only this passage in Zechariah in which he would come mounted as a donkey, but there was another messianic passage that is another passage that spoke of the coming deliverer and savior of the Jews way back in Genesis 14. I'm sorry, Genesis 49. And way back in Genesis 49, it's talking about a descendant of Judah. And Judah is the kingly line, the line of kings. And in that context, it talks about a donkey that is tied to a choice vine. So the whole idea of a donkey tied to a vine was connected in the thought of the Jews with the coming Messiah uh, who would be joined to that. So all of this has tremendous messianic overtones. Uh, it shows that Jesus and Matthew in, in displaying and in, in, uh, proclaiming this passage or this event uh, was showing that Jesus indeed meant to show himself as the Messiah, was identifying himself with these passages that speak of the Messiah coming in this way, and he was owning finally here in a very public way, which he hadn't done before, I am the Messiah. But, interestingly, the thing that is underscored by Matthew is his humility. In the quote from Zechariah, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and full of salvation, and then humble, mounted on a, on a donkey. Now, it's not that Matthew doesn't think that he is righteous, 
because he clears the temple in his righteousness, that he is not coming to save. He's just told of how he's delivered the blind, uh, the two blind men. He will talk about how he heals in the temple a few verses later. So he's coming as the righteous one. He's coming as the one who saves. But Matthew is interested in this particular thing. He is the humble one coming on the colt. He pushes aside these other legitimate, perfectly good words that he believes that Jesus is to emphasize he com- your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a coat, on a donkey. That one word to ring out. And only one other time outside of Matthew is this adjective used humble, but it's used by Matthew also as he relates Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Matthew 5 and in Matthew 11. It's an important concept of Matthew presenting the king. And remember, Matthew is the gospel that supremely sets forth Christ's kingship. He is holding him forth as the king, but he holds him forth as the humble king, a particular kind of king, no less powerful, no less glorious, no less sovereign and exalted, but in fact, a vital part of His glory and a chief part of His glory is to hold it forth this thing almost with trembling hands. Can you get your mind around this? This is a humble king. A humble king. Now, of course, the people did not realize this. The people we know were... Uh, exalting him and praising him to what extent they understood anything at this point that this could possibly be the Messiah. Perhaps some of them were praising him as merely a prophet. We don't know all that was going on in different people's minds. But we all know, and you've heard it so many times, these very people, of course, were the ones that would one day be saying, crucify him. And so these people who wanted him in some sense to fulfill their dreams, to fulfill and accomplish what they wanted for themselves, but not to accomplish God's will. And certainly not to be a suffering servant for them. They didn't see him as one who, on the cross, as one that they loved or adored or gave themselves to in terms of his love. There was a remnant in the proclamation of the gospel of the Jews that saw the glory of Christ and believed in Him for their Messiah. But by and large, they were going to reject Him because they did not want a humble king. They wanted a king who would defeat the Romans. They wanted a political leader. They wanted one who would exalt himself and put... uh, put all other nations down and exalt them with him so that they would be the ones served in the world so that all nations would bow down to them as they bow down to their Messiah. And then for Messiah to proclaim as he does in the uh, chapter right before us in verse 26, uh, chapter 20, 26, uh, beginning in verse 25, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay? Uh, 
the, the rulers lord it over one another. They exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you, my followers. It shall not be so in my kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's just a few verses before he comes on a cult humble. He is going to humble himself even to the point of dying and shedding his blood for his people. That's not the kind of Messiah we wanted. We wanted the Messiah that would exalt us, that would make us the most important people, to make us the ones served, to make us the ones exalted, not to make us then servants of the world, servants of the Gentiles. Are you crazy? But this is the king presented to us. This is the king set forth. And brothers and sisters, remember everything he did, as he says in John so many times. He says, I do not act on my own. I do not act by my own will. It is my Father in heaven who does the works in me. And that is no less true here. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so here in the Lord Jesus Christ is the Father revealing himself as the one who so loves fallen mankind that he will lay down his life for them. He is the one who humbles himself as God to give himself for our salvation. And that had never hit me like it did this week, that this is the revelation of God. (laughs) It's it's like Philippians 2. Years ago, I, I had my thinking turned around because so often in the history of of uh, the study of Philippians 2, when it talked about uh, Christ uh, emptying himself. He who uh, saw himself, he who was equal with God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself and made himself a servant. And it said he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. This word humble that we'll look at in Matthew 11 It's this meekness that he humbles himself and becomes a servant. Well, so often it was regarded as he emptied himself. That is, he he clothed his glory in some way or he put some kind of glory aside. They were trying to figure out what it means that he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? And there were even heretical thoughts about he, he lessened his deity somehow. He became less than God. Terrible things. But it has begun to be understood in... Uh, the last centuries, that this is simply a creative way to say he poured himself out. He poured himself out for the sake of others. And it's not availing of his glory in Philippians 2. As my, uh, one of my dearest professors in, of New Testament, uh, Dr. Chamless in, at RTS in Jackson said, this, this was not to veil his glory. It was to express his glory. This is where his glory is unveiled. He's the humble God 
who it becomes obedient and it becomes a servant even to the point of death. How can you fathom a God like this? How can you resist a God like this? How can you not give yourself to a God who would love in this way? That's the attraction of the gospel. That, that as John says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And it is expressed in this passage as he comes humble, mounted on a donkey. Now, this doesn't mean, if he is humble and meek, that he is not strong. You see this when he gets to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is to go into the temple. And there was the court of the Gentiles. And then later you get to the court of the women. And then the court of the laymen. And then the area where the priests are. And then finally the Holy of Holies. And out here in the furthest precincts where the Gentiles were to have their area, it it was set up, as you know, for selling And the selling itself was legitimate. People traveled from far and they had to find, uh, have animals to buy so that they could sacrifice them. But it was set up in the, in the Gentile area. And Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah 56 that speaks of foreigners, the Gentiles coming to the people of God. I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. It is that verse that Jesus quotes. In his humility and meekness, he is the righteous one who stands up for the Gentiles, for you and me at that point. He stands up and says, this is wrong. They must have a place here. He opens the door, welcoming them to the worship of God. And that's why he is so violent at this point, overturning the tables and driving people out. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And in Mark, it actually says, for the nations, for the nations. And so he has the greatest strength. He commands heaven and earth. He acts in power, healing the blind men right before this passage and healing the lame and the blind in verse 14 of this chapter. And he acts with boldness and righteousness here in the temple, in fact, you'll find that the people who are most meek and humble are the people who act with most boldness for the sake of other people. Because they're not out for themselves. They're out for other people. (laughs) They're out to love other people. And they don't care ultimately what it costs them because they're the humble ones. And they're gentle in their demeanor and they're kind-hearted and gracious when you talk to them. And they're not short and mean-spirited and uh, they're, they're as Jesus himself was. And yet look what Jesus does when he gets to the temple. And so meekness actually brings about the most courageous actions on behalf of others. True humility gives itself away to others with no thought of self. And so don't have a wrong idea of what humility and meekness is. It simply means, in the words of Philippians 2, let each of you in humility count one another as more important than yourselves. And Jesus took an action here that was certainly going to make people hate him. 
It's this kind of thing that got him crucified. But he was the humble one. And he was going to give himself for the sake of other people. Well, would you back up with me to Matthew 5? Let us just look briefly at this passage in Matthew 11, and then we'll make a few applications. Having seen, hopefully, the emphasis in Matthew 21 that Matthew makes on his humility and his meekness, we see this as a vital part of the character of those who are to be a part of his kingdom. In Matthew 5, this is page 809. After saying, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Uh, Those who are broken, those who mourn over their sin and those who are broken and afflicted and mourning under the weight of persecution and affliction from others. It, It joins both of these ideas. But as a result of being broken and mourning over sin, verse 4 says they shall be comforted. So we know the comfort of God, the acceptance and love of God. And, of course, after the cross, we know that this comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And so those who are broken, who've mourned over their sins and who've been comforted in His forgiveness and acceptance become what? They're the meek. They're the ones who, having been forgiven and broken over their sin now, having been loved in that way, they desire to count others as more important than themselves. They are meek and they become pliable in the Lord's hands because they've tasted His goodness and His kindness. So meekness means a pliability in the hands of the Lord. It means giving ourselves up to His will and then particularly then we give ourselves away for others. And these are the ones that inherit the earth. Isn't it interesting? The future kings of the earth, the future owners of the earth are the humble. That's why he said, that's why several times in Luke and later in the epistles, he who exalts himself shall be humble. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the way it's going to be. You can exalt yourself. You can live a life that focuses on you. But just realize that's all you're going to have forever. And you will be cast down in that final day. And you will lose everything. Because the humble, the meek, will inherit the earth and no other. But it's not, it's a meekness that comes because we have been broken about our sin before God. We have mourned over our sin. We've been comforted in Him. And look what flows from this. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, they have a hunger and desire to do what is right. And He will bring it about in their lives. They will be satisfied. And they become the merciful, verse 7. They are the pure in heart, verse 8. They are the peacemakers, verse 9. You see, pure in heart in the sense that they are other-centered. Now, not perfectly, but fundamentally. This is what happens in our lives as He draws us to Himself. This is the mark of those who are the meek and who are members of the kingdom. And you see in verses 10 and following, they're the ones who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are no timid souls, these meek. These meek, humble people die for Jesus' sake. So there's the wedding of the greatest strength and boldness and courage and humility and tenderness and gentleness. Like many times has been 
the phrase tender warriors. We all become tender warriors. That's the meek. Tender warriors for Christ. Warriors of love. Warriors of kindness. And they won't be turned away even if they suffer in doing it because they're tender warriors. And then turn with me finally to Matthew 11. First notice what Jesus, how Jesus gives a foundation for verse 28, come to me. He's just said in verses 25 through 27, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, come to me and learn of me. You see the connection? I am the one who reveals the Father. I alone am the one who reveals the Father. I alone know the Father. And I alone then can convey Him to anyone else. And then He says on the heels of that, Come to me and learn of me. For I am humble and gentle and lowly in heart. So this is a revelation of the Father. If we want to imitate the Father... In His sacrificial love, that's the point. In the Father's giving of Himself and the giving of His Son for sinners who had rebelled against Him, that sacrifice, He didn't even spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. It should make us tremble that God would love us in this way. And when Jesus does not count Equality with a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out and becomes this servant who lays down his life. He is revealing the love of the Father who would sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. And so, bound up in the joy and peace and the rest, that's, that's all of what is intended by rest here. I will give you rest. <clears throat> How? Take my yoke that either means to submit to me as in my word or possibly get under the yoke with me, which you would learn from the second phrase, and learn from me. That is, get beside me, get behind me, watch me, take the yoke and do what I do and think what I think and give yourself as I give myself, love as I love. <clears throat> and he says, why do you take your yoke? Why do you learn from me? Because... I'm gentle and lowly in heart. So as you walk in my footsteps and go where I'm going and do what I'm doing and treat people as I treat them, you will walk in this lowliness and and gentleness. And it shows that the particular medicine we need is this gentle humility. The particular medicine we need... Take my yoke upon you and learn me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. This is how you'll find rest for your soul. To entrust yourself to me and to be like me and to walk in love. It's so similar to what John gives in John 15. These things, these things of love I've declared to you so that your joy would be full. Here it's in terms of rest. You'll have rest as you walk in this humility. And to learn of Him is to learn of the Father. To learn of Christ and to follow Him is to follow the Father. 
and to be like the Father because the Son here is revealing the Father in everything that He does. And certainly that last verse, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, is another way to say, this is what you were made to do. This is the way you were made to live. You get under the yoke and you think it's going to be hard and burdened and you find that you're, you thrive under it. You, you are enriched by it. Your life multiplies in it. This is how you were made to live walking in my footsteps. So this is the king that we are given, this king who is gentle, this king who is humble. And both words are used here in Matthew uh, 11, both the word of humble and the word gentle. They're closely associated in the Scriptures. And so part of the fruit of the Spirit is this meekness of Christ. Love, joy, and it gets to meekness. Humility is set forth over and over in the epistles. It shows that it's part of the life of Christ. As Colossians 3 says, put on this life. Put on this new man that you've become. This new person that he's made you. And both humility and meekness are mentioned there. And so this new life of Christ, this life of the Spirit that is in us, the fruit of the Spirit that will be exhibited itse- exhibiting itself in our life is full of this meekness and humility. And so even when a brother is being restored in Galatians 6, how do we restore him? In a spirit of gentleness. Even when we're opposing those who are teaching other doctrines. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, correcting your opponents with gentleness. And then in Titus 3, it says, show perfect gentleness, uh, be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Every person is to be the recipient of your meekness and gentleness. This has to do with your kindness, your care, your concern that you show with every single person you meet. And so it certainly applies in those most intimate relationships. And I fear so often that where gentleness is not shown is in the home. Where we don't exhibit that meekness and giving in to each other. So how can you reject him as this king of meekness? In marriage, ignore the needs of your mate. Just ignore the needs of your mate. Meekness is looking out for the needs and being concerned to give itself away. Continue to neglect what he or she really needs. What would really fulfill and bless him or her. Neglect in the way you speak, the attentions you give, the concern and thoughtfulness, lack of thoughtfulness, lack of planning, lack of eagerness to serve and give, the lack of a joy in your sacrifice, the lack of a pleasure in giving yourself to him or her. It can be in the very way you look at your mate, the very way you act when you hear that it's him or her on the phone, or the way you act when you see him or her come. And yet men, Ephesians 5 says that we are to lay down our lives as Christ did the church. We are to be the supreme examples of that humility and meekness. Giving ourselves to meet the needs of our wives. 
And of course, for women, it can be very different in your concerns, in your manifestation. For the men, it can be that we're sullen, touchy, short, explosive, or distracted, oblivious, preoccupied, dull, uninterested. I know you've never seen a man like any of that. She, though, can be nagging and manipulative, indifferent, and even mocking toward his likely greater physical desire, bitter, complaining, all because she has no meekness toward him and he has no meekness toward her. And interestingly, the only other time that adjective is used of meekness is 1 Peter 3. Two women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, perishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Well, for all of us, are we going to be like the crowd that only honors Christ so much as he leaves our life intact and he doesn't dismantle us? And He doesn't expect us to become servants of the world. And He doesn't expect us to then find joy and our pleasure in giving ourselves away to others. Are we going to say, Oh Lord, we exalt You as long as You will just verify all the things that I want to be and do and to make me the center. Or you find out what it means to be a human being what it means to be like God, what you were made for, to give yourself away in meekness like this king who came on a donkey. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we bow before you. How exalted, how glorious, how almighty, all authority in heaven and earth is given to you, Lord, You can do anything and everything. You can heal or you can destroy. You can condemn or you can save. You can raise up or you can cast down. All power is yours. And you lay down your life for the sake of sinners. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We praise you in your humility. We praise you in your love. You, Lord, unhinge us. We think of all the petty little kingdoms we want to hold on to. We think of how quickly people make us angry. How quickly we fire off at our husband or our wife or our children. How the least little things can get at us. And there you are, the Lord of glory, meek kind-hearted, patient, forbearing. And you have all glory and all privilege. And you deserve all honor. And yet you're forbearing and kind and gracious even toward us who've done so much against you. Oh, Lord, may we have the sweet spirit of Christ Oh, Lord, may we be like you. We come to you, Lord, as you command us. We come laboring and heavy laden under the burden of self-promotion and self-protection, self-exaltation. 
self-serving. We come to learn of you. We come to receive you and admit our sin and our weakness and our helplessness. Only you can change us, Lord. Only your Spirit can bear that fruit in our lives. Only you can forgive us. And we thank you that you have died to forgive us. And as Paul says, he died that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died and was raised for us. By your grace, Lord, we can live for you and for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.